You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Amen. Good to be with you all, and I am uh, eager to jump into this last passage in John. Actually, I don't know what we're going to do on Christmas Eve yet, so maybe we'll still be in John, but for the moment, uh, this, this might be it. Let's pray together and invite God to speak to us. Lord, this passage introduces uh, a truth that we get to continue to experience today. It's a profound granted or to minimize, or to maybe just not believe. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, help us to know and to believe that that's not just something that was true when Jesus was born into the world and now here we are by ourselves. No, you're coming to us, Emmanuel, God with us, is now something we get to experience for the rest of our lives in this world. You promise even at the the very last moments of your life as you were on this earth ascending into heaven, you said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so trusting that you're here with us in this room, even in a unique way as your church, you're here with us in this room, we pray that you would now move among us. We pray that you would captivate us by your glory We pray we could understand what it is to be people who have received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Would you now reveal to us the glory of your grace as we worship you? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me just begin by asking a question that's slightly uncomfortable. You probably don't want to ponder this question, but let's just think about it for just a second. What for you personally, so Christmas is six days out, what for you would just ruin Christmas? What would ruin Christmas? You don't need to to share it. I have a few guesses. Uh, For some of you, it might be by having too much Christmas. And what I mean by that, there's some of you in this room, and we don't need to see who, but you've had your, your tree up from long before Thanksgiving, and that that's my recommendation is to take it down for the remainder of this week just so you can kind of feel the newness of it. Put it up again on Christmas Eve, pre-Christmas Eve, pre-Thanksgiving Christmas trees and decorations. It's too early. It's too much. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Others of you may ruin Christmas by just hearing one, one uh, too many times 
all I want. What would ruin Christmas is if the kids found their way into your uh, hiding place that you think they know nothing about, but they probably know a lot better than you do, and the surprise of Christmas morning would be ruined. Maybe for some of you, what would ruin Christmas morning would be a just catastrophe of the meal. Like you put, the presents are important, but the, the, the food, the tradition of the food is important, but if, if it got burned and y'all were ended up eating like McDoubles or something on that day, that, that would ruin uh, the, the holiday for you. Um, different things for, for us that, that might sour or uh, ruin the, the Christmas experience for us. I want to throw out something that will most certainly take away the joy of Christmas that unfortunately all of us have been culturally conditioned to believe. What is that thing that has the, the, the possibility of really sucking the life and joy right out of Christmas? What, what would do it for us is having this belief that Christmas is somehow a demonstration of what we deserve. That it's somehow about what's owed to us. It's somehow a, a, an exercise of entitlement. And we'd quickly say, no, no, of course it's not about that. But we are trained young, right? Like making a list, checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty and nice. And of course, if you're on the nice list, if you've like merited or, or you know, through your conduct through, through the year, put yourself in a position of deserving, that, then you're gonna get gifts. Maybe even more subtly, I, I ask my kids this, and I don't think there's anything wrong asking your kids this, but it, it can communicate something over, over time. Uh, what do you want for Christmas? Again, we want to give gifts and we want to bless people, but then we're quickly like conditioned that Christmas, even in a small way, is like the time of year where, man, I've worked hard all year, I've, I've been good, I, sh- I ought to get something that I want, Right? Or maybe even as adults, you know, there's just this subtle expectation that someone will notice us, give us gifts. Maybe with work, the way you think about like year-end bonuses and, you know, how how much you've put into your job through the year, there ought to be some recognition or some little bit to think about Christmas that way. And if we think about Christmas in terms of what what we deserve, at best, what we're gonna experience over this next couple weeks is a little gift, a little bonus, a, a, a little thing that you get that'll give you a little happiness for a few days and all of the joy that comes from that will be taken from you by the time the the clock strikes 12 on Christmas Eve. But if you understand that Christmas is all about grace, all about getting what you do not deserve, you will be filled with ecstatic, unspeakable joy. The point I think we can pull is we get ready to celebrate Christmas together, especially as people who have been conditioned to make this about what we have merited. The point this passage shows us is that the ecstatic joy of Christmas is found in grace. It's not found in getting what we've earned or merited, but simply found in grace. What Jesus does in coming into the world is establishing a totally new Uh, social system, relational system. Whereas the previous or what we're used to social system uh, is based on thinking in terms of, you know, those who, who, who deserve receive. Jesus sets up a system where those who recognize they deserve absolutely nothing from him get everything. They get everything. And so as we ponder together the ecstatic joy that's found in the grace 
of Christmas, I wanna look at this passage kind of through this, this lens. I, I first wanna ask the question, what happened at Christmas? What is John telling us? Like, what are the circumstances of what happened? Second, they wanna ask, why did it happen? And then thirdly, how, how should we respond to, to what's happened? So, so what did God do at Christmas? Why did he do it? And, and how should we ultimately respond to it? Let's begin by keeping our Bibles open right there, pondering what it is that happened at Christmas. Think of all the popular, um, uh, exciting demonstrations that are happening on Christmas with a message. You've got somewhat miraculous circumstances are pointing to uh, one simple statement found at the beginning of this chapter, or the beginning of this verse, verse 14. Uh, what happened at Christmas? It is all summarized with this loaded theological statement. And the word became flesh. That one little statement right there is the wonder, is the, is the splendor of Christmas. Remember, if you were with us when we talked about the word a few weeks ago, who were we talking about? We were talking about the one who has existed for all eternity. The one who has existed in perfect, fulfilled communion with the Father through all eternity. The one who is responsible for bringing every single thing that has ever existed into existence. John says, that one, the eternal God, became flesh. And does he mean by that that he just sort of had a, a manifestation or an appearance of like human flesh? No, he means that eternal word of God became a true and real human being. God himself among us, a real human being. And really what uh, is being demonstrated here with this loaded theological statement is something that different world religions, even Hollywood, is grasping at but, but doesn't fully capture what's happening here. So let me give you a few examples of this idea of, of the word becoming flesh. So uh, we, we probably the most popular uh, Greek myth, Hercules. Uh, we all saw like the Disney re rendition of it. And, and Hercules is this, is this interesting being that is this mixture between divine and human. Uh, he's neither fully divine nor fully human. He's actually like the, uh, and the uh, demonstration of like a third culture. Other thing that, that doesn't quite fit anywhere. That's a, a kind of blending of the two natures. That's, that's one demonstration of it. And another way that, that world religions are grasping at God visiting us is by having a visitation from God that isn't mingled with our humanity. So a, a demonstration of this would be, in many ways, the way Islam views the Quran. So the, the Quran, in many ways, has like divine characteristics. It's not as though uh, God's spirit led Muhammad to write through kind of his own experiences and language. It is a full and complete download, a divine revelation unmingled with humanity. So that's, that's God visiting us without any connection to humanity. And then really, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, great religion that was demonstrated in the early 2000s through Evan Almighty, do you remember this? Uh, did any of you see this movie? That, that's, that's another one where like there is this blending between the divine and humanity. But in this instance, well, first of all, obviously, um, Morgan Freeman plays the role of God, very fitting. And, uh, you know, the, but, but uh, John, or, uh, what was his name, Carrie? Uh, Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey, it's not as though he actually becomes God. He's really just a human being with like some special powers and responsibilities that God would have. Uh, so he is this human that seems to have some divine abilities or characteristics. 
All of these little kind of cultural demonstration, whether it's Hercules or Jim Carrey, are indeed demonstrating for us a human longing that God would come down from where he is and reveal himself to us, be relatable to us, a mystery to us, but none of them fully captures the weight and even the mystery of what John is describing here in John 1.14. What John is describing, the word becoming flesh, theologians call the hypostatic union, if you want to uh, remember that. And what he's saying here is not that Jesus uh, is merely a demonstration of God uh, in, inside of a human being or a, a fully, uh, let me put it like this. What John is not saying is that in Jesus is 50% God, 50% human mixed together. What John is saying is that in the per- human, Jesus is 100% God, 100% human, united together in one person. The word became flesh. I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism, if you just want it summarized very succinctly, the 21st question puts it like this. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? And it says the only redeemer of God's chosen ones is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now follow this. Who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two wholly distinct natures in one person forever. Crystal clear? It's, it's going to have some mystery to it. It's going to be confounding. But listen to me. The reason why it's so important that both of these natures are captured in the person of Jesus has to do with our redemption. Because given our situation of sin, a couple things are going to be necessary. We're going to need a redeemer that has the vastness and the moral purity of none other than God himself. No angelic being, uh, no, uh, no created being would be sufficient to be our redeemer. It needs the vastness, the bigness, and the moral purity of God himself. But it also has to have uh, full representation of humanity. Uh, there was a, a bishop in the uh, 11th century, his name was Anselm, and he came up with this famous line concerning the human nature of Jesus, and he said the following, by that which he did not assume, he cannot redeem. By assume, he means that which he did not take on. Uh, that which he, uh, of our humanity that he left out, he would not be able to redeem us. So this is why Jesus' full humanity is so important. It's not as though his humanity begins at his birth or it begins full humanity encapsulated in the person of Jesus so that we can have a fully human redeemer. And I was debating whether I should point this out or not. I think it's important in our cultural moment, just an aside as there is conversation of overturning Roe versus Wade and uh, the, the, the atrocity of abortion in our country. If we needed among all of the scientific demonstrations, among all of even the philosophical arguments for life beginning at, conceptions, as, at conception. As followers of Jesus, we can be confident that life begins at, at conception because Jesus didn't skip over any of that. He, he became a full, true human being from the moment of conception to the moment of his death. So this, brothers and sisters, is the hypostatic union. Not 50% God, 50% human. Fully God, fully human, one person, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What happened? That's what happened. The word became flesh. And I want to look at one other thing that happened with that. It's worth noting. It says there in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's not as though the word took on flesh, you know, Jesus and being, you know, royalty, being divine, having this unique position that he was in some palace somewhere, uh, that he was aloof or disconnected from humanity. No, he dwelt among us. And not just like among us in general, like the, the mess and the ordinariness and the commonness of our humanity. He was born right into the middle of that. If the birth of the manger can, can tell us anything, it can tell us he is with us in, in, the, in the ordinariness, in the commonness of our humanity. That is where he is. And, and that language that, that John is using is very significant in the Old Testament. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It, it, it calls to memory really what, what John is saying. There's a, the word became flesh and uh, tabernacled or took on a tent among us that, that calls our memory back into uh, the Old Testament when God dwelt in the tent of meeting. Uh, and there was such glory in the tent of meeting that at times Moses couldn't even enter into it uh, because God was so present in that moment. Similar language is being, what does that even say about just God's heart for people and communion and fellowship? That he didn't come and remain aloof, he came among us. The word became flesh and dwelt, of, dwelt among us. The God of the universe, near and with lowly human beings. That's what he did. Let's now move into this second question. Why, why did he do it? I'm wondering if any of you have ever had this just a horrifying social experiment, experience, especially if the person who does it is like someone popular or important. Have any of you ever had the social experience of seeing someone wave at you and like you're a bit, oh, look, hey, and then you turn behind you and they weren't waving to you at all. It wasn't about you. It was about someone else. Has anyone else ever experienced that before? It's horrifying, right? Because you, you think like, oh, like I'm getting this attention, but you're, but you're actually not. Well, uh, when the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, isn't there a temptation in us to, to maybe think, wow, like is, what, what is it about us? Like, man, of all the places the word could have come, he, he come to us, is, is there something unique about us? Is there something special about us? Is there some aspect of our glory that caused the word to become flesh and dwell among us? And John quickly clears that up, that the word becoming flesh tells us nothing about our glory and everything about his he did not come to see and behold everything wonderful about us. He came to, to show us his glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. That's what it was about. That's the aim. Now, glory, let's think about that word for a minute. At, at, at its core, what it means is weight, beginning to describe his gravity, his importance, his significance. But the glory in the Bible has this, uh, this uh, um, way of, of describing that, that significance, that weight being displayed, being, being put out there to be seen. So like, for example, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, all of his power and sovereignty and strength. It's put out there to be displayed in the starry hosts that we see on a clear night. It's, it's a demonstration of the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of that significance. And so that is what is being demonstrated to us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory. Now, some may respond with some questions about that. So God's whole purpose of coming was to show off his glory and to get lots of people to see that glory. Maybe that, that sounds for church, you know, if you've been churched for a while, that's very normal, very common. We sing about that kind of thing. It's normal. But if you maybe are, don't have as much of a church background, maybe that sounds to you honestly a bit narcissistic. Like, is it a loving thing that someone would come and say, look at me, consider me, worship me? Isn't that perhaps self-absorbed or lacking love? And I can tell you for any human being to do that, that would be self-absorbed and narcissistic and lacking love. John Piper describes so well why this is not narcissistic for God. The simple reason is this. To love someone, I mean, just, just blatantly, is, is to be about their well-being their happiness, their joy. And we will be most happy as human beings chasing after God's glory, not our own. We will be most happy, most satisfied, most joyful by giving ourselves to pursuing what is most significant, what is most satisfying, what is most joy-filling. And that's not found in us. That's found in our creator. He goes on to say the following. If God's love made us central and focused on our value, it would distract us from what is most precious, namely himself. Love labors and suffers to enthrall us with what is in love labors and suffers to break our bondage to the idol of self and focus our affections on the true treasure of the universe, God. So yes, it would be narcissistic for any of us to say, look at me, consider my glory. It's not for God. It's the most loving thing he can do because we will be most satisfied when we uh, chase down his glory. Now, I wanna set that aside for a second and ask this question. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He did it to show off his glory. Is there a particular area of his glory that shines the brightest. Is there something to John? Is there something to other uh, biblical writers that captivates them in, in, in a deep, especially uh, captivating ways? Is there a particular area of uh, the word becoming flesh, of his glory uh, that ought to capture our attention? And the answer actually is yes, and we're gonna see it in John. Before we do, I want us to see it in Moses. What was it about his glory that most enthralled, uh, most captivated the people who experienced it? If you still have your Bible open, turn on over to Exodus chapter 33. Again, John 1 is, is making strong connections to what's happening back with the people of Israel in Exodus. Exodus 33. So Moses asks the question that if we ask, we will be the happiest people on earth. Exodus 33, 18, Moses said to the Lord, Lord, please show me your glory. In other words, Moses understood what John Piper was saying. He will be happiest, most joyful when he beholds God's glory. So he says, please show me your glory. And then in the Lord, the Lord. Or back in beginning of verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So, here are the themes. God's glory is on display, and the things that shine out brightest we could summarize this way. First of all, he describes God's grace, his undeserved kindness. He says he's slow to anger. So essentially, one thing that screamed out to Moses about God's glory was that the people you should be angry with, you are being kind to. They don't deserve it, and yet you're being kind to him, to them. Uh, and then he goes on to describe uh, this grace, this mercy, this, this love in terms of faithfulness, constance, reliability, trustworthiness, that the fact that God is kind to the undeserving, and the fact that he is steady and faithful to do it. Now go back to John chapter 1, verse, verse 14. John saw Jesus do so many things. John saw Jesus' power. John saw Jesus' wisdom. John saw Jesus' miracles. John saw Jesus' healings. John even saw his resurrection. And yet there is a particular aspect that stood out among this display of God's glory through the person of Jesus that especially stood out to John. What was it? The same thing that stood out to Moses. We have seen his glory the glory of the only begotten, the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. Undeserved kindness and faithfulness. Grace and reliability, trustworthiness. What was it that, that shined brightest to John? It was his grace. And I wanna ponder this, this faithful grace together with just significant it is and how it should fill us with ecstatic joy. So I wanna walk through a series of human exchanges with you and the type of response that will follow from each, okay? A series of human exchanges. The first one would be an exchange of merit or what you deserve. Let's just say you get your paycheck on a Friday or whatever day you get it. I am guessing that in that moment, you may to your employer say, man, thank you, appreciate that. But like you're not on the floor weeping. The only reason you'd be on the floor weeping is because how much you, hard you worked and how little you feel like you've been compensated in response to it. The, the, the response of receiving what you deserve is maybe like a head nod, maybe a thank you, but, but not I mean, you, you worked for it. You earned it. Like, that, that's yours. You ought to get it. That's one human exchange. Let's look at another one. Kindness. Not merit, kindness. Let's just say, uh, you know, you decide uh, you're going to give me a gift card to um, where? We, my wife said Cabela's. Great. $25 gift card to Cabela's. Uh, man, that, that's super kind of you. Thank you. Like, uh, you know, it, it's not going to change my life, or I probably won't remember it forever. But like, man, that, that is a kind thing to do. That's just an act of love that you did. And I'm deeply appreciative for that. I, I sincerely am in this hypothetical scenario. Okay? That's kindness. Merit, kindness. Let's talk about mercy. I had this experience last Saturday. There was no breakfast in our house early in the morning, and my kids wake up ravenous. So I went over to Walmart, and I was a little bit surprised because there were police cars everywhere. 
And what was, like, at my Walmart, that can sometimes happen, uh, which is okay. Uh, but this time, they, they were everywhere, Prince William County, Manassas Park, Manassas City. None of them had their lights on. And so I go in, and I'd never heard of this. It was awesome. It's called Santa Cop. What, what police officers in our area do, they go to uh, uh, areas of, of struggling neighborhoods, kids who can't afford stuff for their parents, and they pick them up, they bring them to Walmart, and they pay for them to buy all kinds of stuff for, the, the, uh, you know, for their family to experience on Christmas. Man, that was, that was incredible. That was an act of kindness, but it wasn't just kind. I would classify that in the realm of mercy. Mercy is seeing people in misery, seeing people in suffering, and responding to it. And mercy brings about the kind of human response that you will never forget. I mean, that, that is that, that you would notice me in, in the midst of my pain, that you would notice me in the midst of my lack and do something kind for me like that. That's incredible. That's mercy. But guess what? We still haven't hit up. The Prince William County police officers on a Saturday night especially seeing all kinds of problems. Drug dealers, people selling fentanyl that will probably kill people. Uh, people uh, committing DUIs, putting other people's lives at risk. People who have held up stores at gunpoint, arresting them all. And then on Sunday morning, uh, a tough year for you, I'm to uh, the jail to drop them off saying, hey, listen, I know it's probably been uh, a tough year for you. I'm going to take you to Walmart. And this isn't going to be the county who pays for it. Out of my own expenses, I want to make sure that you and your family have an awesome Christmas. So you go in there and you buy whatever you want at my expense. That's certainly not merit. That's, that's not kindness. I mean, it's a kind thing to do, but that doesn't quite capture it. It's not even mercy because they're deeper than just uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a helpless position. They are undeserving. They don't deserve any of that. And yet that is what grace is. Grace is not just helping people. Grace is looking at the most undeserving people and saying, from my own expense, I will bless you and be kind to you. And so what was it for John that jumped out about Jesus? There's so many wonderful things. What was it that captivated him about his glory? It was his grace. Consider the things that Jesus does that amaze us. So for, first of all, like merit, think about this. Jesus paid his taxes. He paid what was owed uh, to uh, Caesar during that time. He did that. That's interesting, maybe even uh, uh, captivating to us. He was incredibly kind. Think about the, the, the wedding where there's no wine and he didn't have to do anything. They would have been okay without wine, but just out of kindness, he, he gives it to them. Uh, think about his mercy. Oh my God, when he sees someone who's suffering, when he sees the, the blind, he gives them sight. When he sees the hungry, he gives them food. When he sees the lame, he gives them, he gives them the ability to walk. But can I tell you what captivates me most about Jesus is not any of those things, not even the rotten, undeserving, miserable people on this planet and says, I'll give you everything. That's the captivating glory of Jesus. What is he doing calling a oppressive tax collector like Matthew to be his disciple? What is he doing just pardoning all the sins of the adulterous women that would come into his presence? What is he doing reinstating Peter after he denied him to his face at his worst moment? What is he doing taking the murderous persecutor of the church, the, 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 the murderous Paul, and making him the chief apostle? It's not just amazing. It's astounding. It's the kinds of things that leave you speechless. It's the kinds of things that will cause you to fall on your knees and say, Jesus, I will worship you and follow you for the rest of my life. 
It's not just his, his kindness, it's not just his mercy, it's his grace. And, and, and John describes his grace as being something that's not temporary, uh, but something that is faithful. He is filled with grace and truth. And then he goes on to say later that, uh, of Jesus that from his fullness, we've received grace upon grace upon grace. I was thinking in terms of that first part, there, that second part, he's full of grace and truth, reliability, faithfulness. I was uh, meditating on this. I was driving around earlier this week and I was listening to, it's probably one of the most popular songs in like Christendom this year. Faithfulness, I'm a Lord to me, from the rising sun to the setting same, I will praise your name. Great is your faithfulness to me. It talks about how God fulfills all of his promises and it's a great song. We ought to sing that song. But as I'm, as I'm sitting in the car listening to this song, I'm thinking it's beautiful, but, but for me, it actually doesn't go far enough. It's that I don't, me is not just that he, it's not just that he keeps on being faithful to me. It's that I don't deserve any of it and he keeps on being faithful. And it's not just that I don't deserve any of it. It's that he keeps doing it over and over and over through all the days of my life and throughout all eternity, God is going to lavish his children with gifts that they do not deserve. So what, what is it that, that captivates, that captivates John, that captivated the, the, the earliest followers of Jesus and that ought to captivate us? Yes, his faithfulness, but it's, it's that he keeps on being faithfully good to people who do not deserve it. So one final question for us to ponder together. How should we respond to this undeserved kindness that we just keep on getting from God? I've got a few things and then we'll wrap it up. The first way we should respond is that we should come to the well of this grace and we should drink deeply from it. It is a great, it's not a dishonor to this eternal well of grace for us to have failures, disappointments of ourselves, shameful things about us. Like it doesn't honor him to keep that hidden from him and, and deal with it on our own. What honors him is when we say, Lord, you said you're from your fullness, so you are full of it. You are full of grace upon grace. So with that promise, I'm gonna come to you and I'm gonna receive it. And there's a couple groups of people that we've said, all right, I'm done. Some of you, like you have never come to receive the grace of God. You've never come to a place where you've said, all right, I'm done. I know I need forgiveness. I know I can't save myself. Jesus, I, I receive your grace. And you could be in a position where you're thinking, it may be for some people that they can go towards that, but my situation is such that I have either done things or I am such a type of person that I am so far removed from that that I'm just outside of it. I have no business going to that well for grace. There are others of you, this is more common. We probably fit into this category at different times in our life. You, at some point in your life, saw your need for Jesus, saw your need for salvation. You came to him and you were amazed by his grace. And yet here you are sitting in this chair after maybe weeks before, you promised you'd never commit that sin again. You would never say that thing, do that thing, fill in the blank. And yet here you are, yet again. And his grace is incredible. His grace goes far. But I mean, certainly it has some limits to it, right? Like, doesn't it, isn't there some, there's some boundary, right, to, to his grace. I cannot 
summarize the grace of God better than John Owen does in this book, Communion with God. If you are wondering about God's grace for your life, just listen to the following words. If all the world should drink free grace, mercy, and pardon from Christ, the well of salvation, if they should draw strength from one single promise, they would not be able to lower the level of the water of grace in that promise one hair's breadth. There is enough grace, mercy, and pardon in one of God's promises for the sins of millions of worlds if they existed because the promise is supplied from an infinite bimmer who was in this reservoir. Remember how we talked about earlier how we needed a redeemer who was divine because there's only, only a divine redeemer would be vast enough, big enough, eternal enough to meet our need of grace. What, what John Owen is saying here concerning the grace of Jesus, whatever sin you're in, whatever shame you feel, that if there were millions of worlds and they were all filled with sin and they were to all come to Jesus for grace and drink freely from it, they would not have lowered the well of his grace by even just one hair's breadth, not by one hair's breadth. So if that is true, the only question for you to consider is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for to come and receive grace? To come and receive, we should drink deeply from the well of God's grace in Jesus. And here's the second thing I think we should do. We should drink it deeply for ourselves and let's just, let's just commit to do this right now. Let's just give a sip of it to others. Okay? Let's, let's drink deeply of ourselves. And then with our human relationships, let's just pass on even, even just a sip of it, right? Because thinking about the generosity of, of God, right? Like this is the time of year we think about like financial giving and those kinds of things. This would be a great moment to talk about finances. I would even just set that aside and say this, man. For some of us, the past two years of just church experience, of COVID experience, has just turned us, quite honestly, into bitter, angry, resentful, impatient people. Whether it be with family, spouses, coworkers, kids, churches, church members, church leaders, I don't know. I don't know where there is hurt uh, or where there is bitterness from people in your, in your life. What I can say is, how can we drink from this eternal well of grace and not even just pass a sip onto others? I don't, I, don't, I don't think we can. I think we drink deeply for ourselves and for the people who we struggle with, we need to extend the same grace we've received. And I think the third thing we should do is take communion. So we'll do that in just a second. Let me break it down like this. We're talking about this bright, shining area of God's grace, the place where his uh, glory is revealed the clearest. And when we read about these two things, he, he is, uh, you know, in, in his glory, we've seen his, his grace and truth. It really creates a bit of a tension. Because on the one hand, in God's character is this impulse to just give things to people that they don't deserve, precious things, eternal things, saving things to people that they do not deserve. It's just his nature to do that. And yet also what's in God's nature is faithfulness, integrity, uh, trustworthiness. And we know that in God's trustworthiness, his integrity, his law. So how is God going to uphold the integrity of his character and give 
salvation to people who don't deserve it. How is that going to work out? And behold, this is the bright burning center of the display of God's glory. The cross of Jesus Christ is the place where his character is put on full display, where God's eternal grace is displayed for sinful people like you and me, and his integrity, his righteousness, his truthfulness is upheld. By having Jesus die in our place for our sins, his integrity, his righteousness is upheld, justice is satisfied, and by him doing that, we get to drink from that eternal well of grace. And so I invite you, if you have put your faith in Jesus, to come forward to the communion table this morning and to be remembered of the free grace that's given to us in him. If you're not there yet, you've just not said, Lord, I'm a sinner, give me your grace, don't come take communion, I'll just ask the same question I asked a minute ago, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for from this eternal well of grace that cannot be uh, diminished by any of your sins? What are you waiting for to come and receive from it? If you're not ready to do that, please don't participate in communion this morning for the rest of us. Maybe you need to linger in your seat for a moment and just don't, don't make promises and commitments to God. Maybe you can do that a little later. Just receive his grace. Just receive the fact that God delights in you. He loves you. He has good plans for your life. Not at all be- and, and maybe for others of you, you can remain in your seat and, and ponder that invitation to come and receive grace from Jesus by receiving his salvation for the first time. Let's pray together now.